This is the Innovation Engine podcast from Three Pillar Global, your home for conversations with industry leaders on all things digital transformation and innovation. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine podcast. I'm your host and Three Pillars Chief Evangelist, Scott Barho, and I am thrilled to be joined today by Bernie Doon. Bernie is the industry leader for Three Pillars Information Services Industry Vertical, where he helps a broad range of companies harness data, information, and innovation to develop new products and services for their customers. You may remember Bernie as the co-host for past episodes, such as with Marianne Johnson, Chief Product Officer at Cox Automotive, and Josh Eastray, CEO of Bloomberg Industry Group. Bernie, it's great to have you back. Welcome to the Innovation Engine. Scott, great to be here. Well, and you and I, you know, we go, our, our careers at Three Pillars started right around the same time. So we've we've been on quite a journey together. Um, so, so I've been really looking forward to this conversation. But let, let's help our audience out. Um, information services is not a, a common phrase. Um, and so uh, many may not know what that, what kind of businesses that refers to. So can you kind of anchor us in a, in a definition and some examples? Yep. Um, you can think of information services as B2B companies whose primary uh, asset is insights and then value-added services. Um, these are companies that help uh, other companies in multiple industries accomplish something. It can be helping them uh, sell more goods, get to insight faster to connect with their uh, audiences. Uh, there are several subsectors within information services, just to give some context and flavor around the types of companies. Uh, financial data companies like Bloomberg and S&P are information services companies. Um, automotive data companies and services companies like Cox Automotive, uh, that owns Kelly Blue Book and vehicle valuations and intent data um, information services. Scientific, tactical, and medical publishers, uh, Springer and Elsevier. Um, credit data, Experian, Equifax, TransUnion, uh, consumer product goods, Nielsen IQ. So there mm-hmm. are a number of different sectors, but the commonality is that they're taking uh, data and information. Typically, it's proprietary data. Um, they're also getting data from third parties uh, and publicly available data, enriching that data, often doing their own research, and then turning data into insight and, and content. Um, mm-hmm background, some of the companies started off as B2B publishers and over time evolved to digital media so they can have their own content and editorial and research teams, but everything powered by um, information. Information is really the product that helps another company accomplish whatever uh, their goal may be. Well, and, and you know that you remind me that uh, uh, you know in our actually in a follow up conversation with Josh Eastright from from Bloomberg, it was so interesting because I think of Bloomberg and I think a lot of people do as a media company, right? They they publish. There's articles from Bloomberg, etc. And that's that's a lot of people's you know knowledge of them comes from that. But understanding what his group does, Josh Eastright's group, um, you know, focusing on tax, government, law. You know, you're looking at a tax professional trying to look up a particular piece of the tax code. Um, get additional information around it, or maybe uploading a contract and looking for common language. If you're a lawyer um, for for that particular clause, that that was eye opening to me to think about like what an information services product looks like, um, and uh, and why Bloomberg Industry Group is considered an information services uh, company and not a not a media company for for our purposes. Yeah, I liked what Josh said about um, providing insight at the point of need. So helping someone like understanding the context of their workflow 
And when is the moment of struggle or need where I can leverage the product to make my job easier and get the insight when I need it to make my day go faster? But yeah, f- uh, fantastic. And that's a, that's a great example. A um, couple other examples are uh, Earth Networks uh, is a mm. company that has global weather sensors around the world. And they're collecting lightning strike data and publishing that nearly in real time. Uh, for sports teams and stadiums and local government authorities to keep people safe. So a lot of different really interesting use cases in this sector and some common themes and approaches to how you organize information, uh, make it available, and, and then how do you drive visualizations and intuitive user experiences to make that data and information discoverable. So, so that comment actually leads really well into into my next question, which is, you know, as as you observe this this market, and I know you do, you're very well read, and, and obviously you talk to a lot of leaders in this space. Like, what do you hear are some of the biggest um, opportunities or broadest opportunities that and trends that you're seeing in this space specifically? I would say so over the last five years, I've seen you know I've seen a commonality in sort of the competitive model or, or how you how you approach um, um, competing with other companies in your sector but more importantly providing value and infra- information insights to your customers is companies are building a, a common data platform so mm-hmm. a unified data store that brings all of your information together in in one place versus having siloed data that you've acquired through acquisitions or sort of just organically acquired different data sources and silos over time. So you need a common data platform to bring everything together. On top of that, you need metadata, you need really intelligent, intuitive search. Um, But once you've got that in place, there's a trend towards revenue diversification. So companies Mm. are saying, I have a traditional audience of, of X, Y, Z, and they're, inf- they're interested in the information that I have. But um, a Wall Street firm or a hedge fund seeking alpha might be interested in purchasing some of my data. Or if I've got real estate um, MLS data with photographs of staged homes and things like that, then I might be able to get information on paint colors and furniture and design trends and things like that. Um, so we've seen companies say, this is like the core market that we serve, uh, but I could diversify revenue by leveraging the information that I have today and launching a new product in an adjacent market or something completely different to uh, diversify mm-hmm. revenue. Um, another one I've seen is the evolution of the customer experience. So um, traditionally, companies have built experiences for the power user, like I'll do Belay search or I'll do a pretty detailed search and things like that. And over time, I've seen companies um, start to build experiences for the budget holder. So these are typically subscription-based services. So if I can provide um, insights to um, an executive or C-suite audience um, at their point of need proactively without doing um, an, you know, a search, um, I've seen that evolution of the experience happen over time. And now, um, as I'm sure we'll talk about today, and we've talked about one-on-one many times, there are new tools in the toolkit like generative AI that have their mm-hmm. own capabilities to help accelerate product innovation and deliver efficiencies and insights um, in new ways that, in some cases, can help um, the audiences of these companies. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the the AI topic in particular seems really exciting if you're in information services, but also threatening and 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 concerning because a lot of these tools, a lot of companies don't have the experience with these tools. Their limitations as well as their the opportunities and to be able to navigate that. So it's a it's an exciting but also uh, um, interesting time I think in in your sector in particular. But um, but as you mentioned, uh, customer experience and the transformation of customer experience. One of the things that that really strikes me is when you have these rich data sets and you think about the point of need as you, as you were talking about. It's very possible those points of needs are going to be inside the ecosystem of that business, and therefore um, APIs can play. Uh, a really strong part in like this data delivered into the ecosystem of a customer is might be more effective than a, a, a software as a service product that you have to navigate to and log into and use. And I've, I've seen more companies doing those kinds of rich integrations. Are, are you, are you seeing that as well in your, in your vertical? Yeah. And, and um, the way I would frame up the response is that we see three channels of distribution of like the content and insights that these companies are producing. Uh, one would be the web and mobile products. So let's call that like the product experience. And that's typically a, a, a SaaS or subscription based product. Um, that can also include integrations of, of workflow um, to, to, help solve the need for the customer, you know, when they need to kind of integrate with their ecosystem. But uh, interestingly, a lot of the products that we help build for companies in the space are for their customers who are, are Meta or uh, X, formerly Twitter, uh, some really large mm-hmm. technology companies, and they've got very large data science and AI teams. And they're like, you know what? I don't necessarily need the user interface. I want to directly ingest the data into my machine learning models or my you know, data lake for, uh, to feed machine mm-hmm. learning and algorithms and, and deeper uh, analysis. So mm-hmm. API as a product is a, is a really important capability to have in the information services space. And it's not, um, it's not I guess, the, the APIs of, of old where you, you, know, you build an API and Kind of build it and they will come that there there's high expectations for highly performant uh apis mm-hmm. and then a very um intuitive well-designed developer experience right so um it's it's worth noting i guess as a sidebar as we're talking about the, the opportunities in the space is that many of the companies started as publishers and then they became mm-hmm. also you know data companies data 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 and, the, and, and there's a lot of power and value in the proprietary nature of, of the data. But they're also discovering that having really strong talent in product design and user experience to make that data discoverable in an intuitive and usable way and displayed in data visualizations that are more customized to the particular use cases of that industry is really, really important. So. Important to validate your ideas, get your information in the hands of the users, but display the information in a way that is intuitive and usable um, for that particular uh, audience and then for, for their stakeholders. So you think of a CPG company, like I, I, I need to help um, sell more of, of my good, but my stakeholders are the, you know, the, the CEO, the, the chief marketing officer, you know, the chief strategy officer and i need to provide insights and information that is useful to them but within an industry 
context versus uh, built around CPG, which would be totally different from weather data or, or some of the other sectors. Yeah, yeah. No, that totally makes sense. Well, one of the things that, uh, one story that, uh, that you just reminded me of was helping a, a, a client that I won't, I won't name, but a, a very well known market research company, you know, and their, their hypothesis coming to us was, you know, we need more, more visualization tools and try to keep the, the our customers on our platform performing those visualizations. And so we just need more features and we want you guys to accelerate features on visualization. And it turns out that actually they wanted to manipulate the data. Um, and that's why they were downloading the data, doing and then manipulating that data locally and through Excel and other and tools like that yep. in order to produce then visualizations with the exact data set they wanted, whether that was a filter data set or, or a combined data set with other data sets, maybe local or, or inside data sets. And so that it was it was just so interesting because it it sort of makes sense like we're we're not getting the the engagement that we expected out of this product so we need more features um and it turns out actually your paradigm is incorrect they need the the data to be more relevant in their context and that relevance right now is being solved by com- by combining the data sets or filtering the data sets through excel rather than because the platform did not allow them to do that so just just interesting as you as you talk about those themes i, I getting to see that uh, firsthand with a client was uh, was was really yep. an aha moment and, and a great catch. Perhaps not unique to information services, but worth calling out is that you know as a company in, in any space or as, as as a company like Three Pillar working with other companies, it's important to get a sense for the culture. So some some companies mm. have a sales driven culture, and a sales driven culture can be more oriented around what are the new features we're going to be uh, releasing. A data-driven culture may be around, hey, I've got my data structure in a certain way and I want to build the products around that data structure, which isn't necessarily the, the right solution for the customer. Ultimately, we, mm-hmm. we want like a, a customer-centric uh, cust- you know, culture uh, that designs to solve for the need of the customer while creating a Venn diagram with business outcomes, right? We don't want to solve for every need. We want to solve for self-funding product needs that the customer is willing to invest in. Um, But yeah, it's an interesting space. And uh, a few years ago, we helped um, a leading research company that had proprietary research build um, a self-service tool for discovery of their research assets for their their, uh, customers. And it started off with, well, we need to visually display uh, the insights, the nuggets of information that are available. But they wanted a collaborative workspace where they could assemble those insights into stories and then share those out with their uh, with their audiences. So the more you get into the user research and understanding the context of the user, you can see how that integrates into the context of of their day and the jobs to be done when you use that framework. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's such a great framework. It really focusing on that point of struggle um, as you brought up earlier, which is those are such useful ways to think about uh, information services and b- building impactful products. So that feels, feeds really nicely into another area that's crucial for companies in your space to have a really solid handle on, and, th- and that is their data. And obviously, you've talked about this before, but wh- what do you see taking place in the data realm around things like unified data hubs? Well, it's a fascinating uh, question, question that I love, and, and, and it's a meaty one. We could spend a lot of time on it. I would, I would frame it up this way. Um, the data landscape is, is constantly changing um, and evolving. Um, you know, in conversations with a lot of um, data practitioners and 
and you know industry thought leaders. And there's a lot of conversation around the the myth of the modern uh, data stack because it's mm. it's constantly constantly changing, right? Right. So you know we've seen an an, an evolution from you know SQL to data warehouses, uh, you know for analytics to uh, to data lake for unstructured data that can fuel machine machine learning. Those are very excellent, you know, useful um, iterations. And then and then the lake house um, and 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 data hubs. And you've seen the rise of companies like Snowflake and Data Databricks who've been who've been very successful, right? Right. Um, but also a lot of uh, in, you know, investment uh, into solutions along the along the data stack. So rather than having kind of one one size fits all solution, uh, companies have to craft their approach uh, to how they're going to to manage um, data. And uh, we've helped a lot of companies create what we call the unified data store, which is an approach to centralizing your data in the cloud. And making it available across across the organization. So, think of it as the opposite of data silos, but getting everything available um, you know, in the cloud uh, where you need it. And and that you know is similar or the same, if you will, in concept to to the data hub. Um, so the data mm-hmm. hub, the advantage of that is 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 that is governed and you know processed data. It's ready to be used and consumed. Um, for different use cases across the organization, and you know, typically it's available for enterprise data use, but in the information services sector, it's also available to be productized. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you, can, right? you can drive multiple products from one data data set, essentially, uh, which can be composed then of multiple data sources. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So. Cox Automotive uh, early 2022 announced Drive Q. Which has consumer intelligence and market intelligence and and vehicle intelligence, and then they leverage that to launch thirty seven new products into the market and something like ten thousand product enhancements. So I love hearing stories like that because it really is this power of comp- of composability and product development, right? This idea that you right. can take different pieces and parts and compose them into unique products that serve different needs. But when you put the data piece in there, getting that return on investment really almost requires a, if I had this data set, what, what are all the possibilities and things that I could do with it? Um, right. And uh, yep. it, it, it certainly changes the investment picture um, uh, from that standpoint. Exactly. And, uh, another interesting story is you know, Equifax. Equifax invested $1.5 billion in the cloud, you know, moving to the Equifax cloud over, over a few years. And created a common data fabric, right? So it's like 100 separate data silos put into one. You know, Equifax, like other companies, has grown through acquisition, mm. but putting that that uh, information together in one place creates the you know common data fabric. As, as they frame it up, is that's an that's an approach, but it makes the the information available, but also governed, right? Um, you might have all the information available in one place, but not everyone should have access to all data. Uh, some companies have, you know, PI, you know, public or you know, pri- private data that needs to be protected, but mm-hmm. it, it gives you the right the right uh, safeguards around data. But from there, you can do interesting things, like you were saying, composable products. Now I can take that, you know, common data fabric or that enterprise wide data hub, and I can create 
a sector-specific uh, data hub for a particular use case. So Equifax mm-hmm. created Total Verify Data Hub, which allows, allows them to, to do like employment verifications and, and background checks and things like that for a particular audience and use case and monetize that and then structure a different data hub for, for a different um, audience uh, segment. So it's a, it's a really interesting concept. It's a, it's a, it's an approach to where you store uh, your information in the cloud, how you store it, how you govern it, Hmm. metadata and and the the whole approach to, uh, you know, a unified approach to getting your data in one place. What I love about it though, and, and speak with clients a lot about is how that either helps or hinders you in accelerating product innovation. If mm-hmm. you have it, it's great. So you can you can do that composable products and you can move fast. If you don't have it, then you're on the, the data silo spectrum or you're somewhere in the middle. You can design a fantastic product, but you might not be able to move as fast as some of your competitors. So it becomes uh, almost table stakes for competition in the information services sector to have, to have this capability in place uh, so that you can produce an ROI and realize value faster uh, mm-hmm. uh, through that through that concept. Well, and, and I go back to um, you know some of the some of the concepts in Silicon Valley, like you know, do things that don't scale and, and, and this kind of thing. Like because you and I both know through the product mindset, we can we can take a hypothesis for a particular product and slice it just very thinly, right, and go after that value proposition. Rather than build, building the the whole data hub first, you can do that in order to prove out that yes, right. there's gold in these hills, and and then that, that can help you fund the hey, there's more of these hypotheses that we have, and we're, we we want to make that bigger swing investment. So there's a couple different ways you can come at it either horizontally or vertically, um, and and frankly, I like right. it when when clients come at it vertically first. It's like prove out that there's there's some gold in in this in this hill before you go mining it. Um, digging, just digging is not a good idea. So you can use a churn or a lot of resources quickly. Um, so a couple different ways to go about doing this. And, and one, one other thing that I, I think is worth mentioning here, cause we're, we're just getting ready to launch our data engineering offering is, is the insight that um, using software engineers to do data engineering work is not a good recipe. Um, software engineers use different tool sets. They're used to using logic, if then statements and things like that. Whereas data engineers are used to using tools in the cloud. A lot of these tools didn't exist when many of the CTOs and CIOs of our clients um, were were building products or doing anything uh, technical. So the space has changed, transformed so much. The tool sets have, have moved so far ahead that you really do need a differentiated mindset for working with data as a, as a, as an asset. Um, how you massage it, how you move it around, um, how yeah. you apply scripts. You know, I, I've got I've got plenty of engineers who tell me like, oh yeah, I do Python. It's like, no, you run Python scripts over data sets. You're a data engineer. You're not a Python engineer. I can't, right. I can't, you can't write me a product built on Python. Right. Um, but, uh, but that's just, that, that's, there's a little bit of confusion, I think, in the market around that. And, um, and that's, uh, I think a key differentiator for us is that we've, we've understood that and are, are working on uh, uh, incubating and developing that talent to help clients do this well. Yeah, I love it. Um, you know, data data engineers or data engineering are like the, the unsung heroes of data science uh, and AI and machine learning, right? Because you have to have the core data engineering 
uh, in place and all the things that go along with that mm-hmm. in order to have the data in the, in the right structure in place and format and cleanse and all the other steps to make it available uh, for data science and generative AI and all the other all Absolutely. the other things. And it well, starts plumbing with- is not sexy, <laughs> but it's super important. <laughs> so. uh, I love what you said about um, incremental value as well, because uh, mm-hmm. we, we have helped a number of clients with platform modernization. Sometimes it's called application modernization or you know, data platform modernization. Mm-hmm. But moving from what you have today, which could be um, uh, hodgepodge maybe, but it can, it can be an amalgamation of a, of a, of a, a lot of growth acquisitions and legacy technology, yep. sometimes uh, vendor lock-in, um, aging code and, 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 uh, you know, moving slow, right. Yeah. To building the kind of platform for the future that supports your business strategy and your, and your product strategy. So when we were talking about, you know, building the plan for, um, platform modernization starts with, well, what's your product strategy? Uh, what do you need it to be today? And where are you going in the future? Because the right platform view is the one that serves your roadmap, right? Right. But then it's incremental value along the way. Sometimes these are large efforts and in, in endeavors. And to show proof of value, you target things near term in the roadmap that will be self-funding that mm-hmm. will demonstrate you know clear value so that you can go through stage gate approvals and continue to uh, go on your modernization journey. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you know it. It's it's really the only way to do it um, responsibly. I think um, is to is to let the investment follow the return. Um, well and, said. And sometimes you have to place bets, but you want to place the smallest bet possible with the biz- biggest possible return. And uh, and, th- and this is a place where I think uh, a lot of times we we can be very good advisors on on you know just alternative ways of going about doing that. I've you know I've I've shared with you stories before about being asked to build me a data lake. To do what? I don't know. But if you build it, then we'll figure out what it's going to do. And it's like this this does this approach does not work. You're going to be very disappointed at what this data lake does when we get there. But if, if it's your money, <laughs> so right. um, exactly. but anyways, so good Yeah. You know, so you know, I think the information services industry can be a, you know a good beacon or example for even other industry sectors because. The data hub is very powerful for enterprise data and, and operational efficiency of your business and lots of customers, but it can also be a source of revenue generation uh, and, and innovation. So you can find you know, new audiences and new markets to serve with that, with that data and having um, that available in one place and microservices and APIs and easy to um, you know, couple and decouple allows you to move fast and, and innovate and that can lead to you know better outcomes for your customers but also competitive advantage totally agree you know what uh, let's dig into a concept that I, I think is probably really applicable to the information services sector in a, in in particular um, and usually when we talk about digital products our our minds tend to think about SaaS products, and certainly as many of the examples that you and I used here were, were SaaS products. But in the case of, of information services, that doesn't have to be the case. 
So what are some good examples that take us beyond the, the, the selling licenses? Let's go, let's just use that concrete example, right? Selling licenses for logins. What, what are some real world products that you can't touch or feel? I feel like we touched on a few already, but it's worth, it's worth yeah. revisiting. That's, it's an interesting question. Um, and so far I haven't seen the Vulcan mind meld or, uh, telepathy used for conveying, conveying information yet, but I'm sure someone's, um, Working, working. <laughs> you know Elon's working on it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, it actually is. You're right. That's obvious. Um, but I'll go back to like you know there are three main channels available for information services companies. Right. Mm-hmm. It's the web and mobile product experience that that SaaS based product, and uh, you know to the to the extent you can interact with your web and, and mobile device, then you can kind of tangibly uh, interact with the data and and, and drive that. Uh, and then there's the the APIs, right? I, I I want to provide the information available through through uh, through licensing um, to companies that want to directly ingest that. And then the third one is data data marketplaces. Um, oh, right. Yes, that's right. Uh, some of the you know, larger financial data players are hosting data on data marketplaces, uh, but some of the you know some of the risks or concerns that information services companies have broadly, not just with data marketplaces, is uh, the perceived value of your information. Uh, so would, the opposite of that would be commodity risk. Uh, so as you're building out a, a data platform for an audience or an industry or for multiple audiences and industries, you want to make sure that you're delivering differentiated value and uh, you're not running the risk of being perceived as as a as a commodity right so right. the concern i've heard voice with data marketplaces is that you can be commoditizing your data um where i host my data uh, is important and maybe i wanted to mm-hmm. provide a limited uh, set of data that can be used for lead gen um, into one of my subscription-based products or or apis or or a more robust comprehensive solution for the for the customer customer need um, and then, you know, the, the Bloomberg had the, the terminal on the desk, right, for, for years yeah. to directly interact with that. Uh, and then web, web and mobile experiences were, were built around that. When we talked about traditional publishers, I've got a physical print uh, magazine or book for the industry. Um, could be a, a catalog of equipment uh, for, for farming. Well, that mm-hmm. stuff has moved into the digital realm now. And I can discover that uh, through, you know, on- online means through through my phone or through my uh, through my desktop. Same with automotive data, right? Uh, if I want to buy a, uh, a car, I can research that from my phone or or from from the web. So, uh, helping to helping me discover uh, insights, information, products, and services in uh, in a more uh, efficient way. Um, but so far, yeah. no, no, um, no beaming the information through, through the <laughs> through, through the air, through the airwaves that um, that I've seen. Right. Well, you you hit on a couple of themes that I think are really important for um, folks in this industry to know, which is, for example, um, you know, it's great to point, provide data at the point of need, and let's say that's through an API, which is invisible. Um, to the end user, they don't know that it's um, you know X Y Z company information service company's data that they're accessing at that point, mm-hmm. which can really devalue it when it comes time to pay your invoice. 
right? right. It's like, wait, where are we using this? Where are we using this this company? I don't log mm-hmm. into anything from them. And mm-hmm. of course, the answer is no, it's fully integrated. Um, but you just may not know that as an end user. And, and so part of that seamlessness can also then hide your differentiation and your value in a way that's, that's worth thinking about. Um, how do you stay, how do you stay visible and relevant, um, and totally worth the, the, the invoice, um, that, that they need to pay to, to gain access to that data set? Um, the other thing that, that struck me as interesting, um, as, you know, as we talk about APIs, I'm working with a couple of, um, of companies right now, um, in different sectors where their customers are also very different in terms of maturity. And so some of them are not able to use APIs. Um, they're not able to consume them data in that fashion. Mm-hmm. And so they're still looking for what's a flat file approach. How can I just get a data dump uh, maybe once a month, um, which certainly there are, the, the cloud has completely changed the tool set in terms of how we can do that. Um, we can do it securely. We can do large amounts of data. We can do all kinds of stuff. Um, we can provide you with just deltas. We can provide you with a whole new data set. There's so many tools and things and techniques that we can do to make that even that old stodgy flat file. Here's a hunk of data. Please use it at, as you wish and pay us a lot of money for it. We can even do that more evolved than we used to. Um, but it's just I think it's interesting to know that as these companies are facing their customers, they're facing a broad variety of people on that digital journey and, and readiness to, to take on yeah. uh, newer newer techniques. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's where it's important to. Well, you, you need to do your uh, you need to do your 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 research, right? So um, you need to design your overall product experience to meet the needs of your specific uh, user base. And I and I think you really need to have at least the two channels of API um, and and web and mobile product experiences, and then for the right use cases, uh, data, data marketplaces. Um, I mean, some of the challenges we've seen um, companies uh, come to us to to help help with. Are you know validating new new product ideas? So we're we're really great at data. We're really great at at at, at, at generating insights and research and, and building content. Maybe not so great at launching a new product that meets the needs of the users because we really understand this space, but we don't necessarily know how to uncover the specific needs and and validate uh, a, a product idea. The way that I frame up in my conversations with you know industry participants is, you want to um, help increase your chances of building the right product, but more importantly, decrease your chances of building the wrong product. And you want to be good stewards of company capital, which is dollars, you know, and and time. And you want to generate ROI for your stakeholders, CEO, the board of directors, your your investor group, right? And you want to get through stage gate approvals for investment steering committees and things like that. So um, companies that can be fantastic at generating uh, insights and and information need to make sure they're designing for the end user and solving for for their needs. And that goes back to the earlier comments around what are the right uh, workflows? What's the right intuitive experience? Search is super important there. Um, How do I extract the data and then um, visualize that data and then turn that data into a, a work product that can you know feed feed my my own stakeholder um, group so product validation product design uh, is super important and I have seen companies evolve in their capability as they you know have progressed from 
publisher or you know, traditional company towards more software, uh, software and data driven to, you know what, on top of that, we can add uh, design. So you've got the whole portfolio. Design, of- user research. Yeah, I mean, I, I often, you, you and I both talk about this plenty of times. So I think for the benefit of our listeners, you know, so much of product development is psychological. Um, and so getting deep inside the heads of your users and understanding their context, sometimes even better than they they could articulate it. So it's not just asking them, it's it's right. observation, it's, it's, it's provoking responses and then mental mapping um, those users and how they think about their problem, how they think about their point of struggle, um, what, what shape that takes, what language they use, what, you know, those, those details really matter. And it goes back to our earlier example of uh, a client who thought more visualization tools would increase engagement when it's like, no, actually I need, I need a completely different set of features here to make the, to increase engagement. Um, and the opportunity cost is real, not only from a money perspective, but from a time perspective. Your competitors are figuring this out while you're building the wrong product. Um, and that, that seems very dangerous. That's super important. And you can also be blinded by your own industry uh, expertise. Mm-hmm. So um, so we we had a client, unnamed industry, uh, who had 25 years of experience in their particular sector. And they identified an opportunity to launch a, a product using their kind of existing data in an adjacent market where they had mm-hmm. professionals with a lot of expertise. And they had a concept for what the design user interface of the product looked like and which uh, data needed to be included in the MVP and, wh- and which didn't. And through that, um, through that professional uh, user experience research, we discovered that if you don't include this data set over here, you're not going to achieve adoption in your MVP. And the way that you as an industry expert in your field think you think the design uh, should flow at the product, it's not actually the design that your users want. But don't trust us. Uh, trust the user. And here we have got a video um, of users that we've, we've researched. So that validation piece is super important. Uh, it's super important to leverage the the you know the craft and the, the capabilities of um, the UX research and design discipline, hand in hand with architecture uh, and engineering and and business acumen and all that industry expertise. Yeah, well, and and uh, since you mentioned it, we you know we've just launched and are, are going to be campaign running some campaigns on product validation offering, um, which is three is packaged as three design sprints, um, leveraging lean UX design thinking. Um, but as you as you say, like it's it's really about hearing directly from these users um, about how again they they think, um, and so getting them to talk out loud, putting wireframes in front of them, and, and testing hypothesis, and getting actionable information that either disqualifies or or enhances your confidence in your product hypothesis. Um, and like like you said, um, the opportunity cost of going the wrong way it can be can be quite large. So. Um, so, you know, uh, just to stick with the fear, <laughs> um, let's talk about uh, ChatGPT for a second, um, you know, because we did touch on AI and obviously ChatGPT is all the rage right now. It has um, put AI on, on in everyone's uh, lexicon in a way that it wasn't uh, before uh, OpenAI and, and uh, uh, the folks there launched ChatGPT. Are you seeing any, any uh, of your clients incorporate ChatGPT or, or similar services into their products? At this point, so I would say um, companies are actively experimenting with generative AI, which uh, can you know can include um, 
the the different LLMs and language models from OpenAI, you know, including um, GPT, but also from other competitive solutions as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, particularly uh, enterprise scale uh, clients that may have larger data science teams and may have uh, deeper experience with artificial intelligence or more nimble startups that have kind of started as AI and, you know, uh, data engineering kind of native, native companies that have a little bit of a head start are, are doing that. I expect that, um, you know, over the next year, we'll see a lot more volume of announcements of people saying we've included generative AI. Um, you know, maybe some of the early announcements could be how much is marketing versus how much is a, is a real live use case. But certainly one of the best examples um, is uh, Case Text open or launched co-counsel in March 2023. Case Text is a is a is a legal technology software and AI innovator. Um, they've been around for 10 years. They've got a 10-year track record of working uh, in AI and and in data engineering in in this in this space. And they had uh, early access uh, from OpenAI to the to the language models, mm-hmm. but what a lot of people in that, and so they've been successful in launching a new product that serves um, law firms and helps save hours and hours and hours of uh, you know attorneys and, and their and their talented staff going through and processing legal documents. Right. Mm-hmm. But what a lot of people don't know is what it takes to productize uh, Gen AI for that use case. And that's four thousand hours of training and fine tuning. 30,000 legal questions, 400 attorneys from global law firms, all going through essentially product validation to tune mm-hmm. the model to make sure that it's accurate. So what we have been advising our clients is to experiment with purpose and then mm-hmm. proceed with caution because we know that um, the LLMs are prone to hallucination, hallucinations. Hallucinations, hallucinations. yeah. And, um, and, and, and errors. And then you've got, um, security concerns. You've also got legal contractual concerns. Like I have proprietary data, but I also have third party data. Which data can I put into an LLM and copyright um, protected data? Yeah. Exactly. And use, a, um, obviously like a private instance, like a, you know, private copy of an, an LLM. And then there's the, the whole, you know, uh, existential debate of large language models versus smaller uh, models and a lot of the innovation and, you know, venture capital is flowing into the smaller niche uh, use case models, um, which Mm -hmm. have have their, uh, their advantages. Um, But certainly that, like that, uh, that was one of the the earliest uh, wins in the information services sector. And that was serving uh, law firms, but they, they had a head start and they had a long track record of you know AI uh, engineering and, and that and that kind of native native cap- capability. So I would say certainly right out of the box that the technology isn't isn't ready. So you need to experiment with it. You need to test and validate, train over time. And um, as you and I know, uh, uh, you need to solve for need and and minimize time to value. And you don't pursue technology for technology's sake. Uh, you come with an opportunity or a problem. And then you see if generative AI is the is the is the right fit. Right. 
Yeah, well, well said. And you know, I don't know if you saw a headline. I, I, I wish I could remember um, where I saw it. It was, I think, it was just in my newsfeed as, as, as you know, doom scrolling or whatever. But, um, but I saw a, a case for the first time ever. A legal brief was submitted to a court with made up case law. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, they had allowed the hallucinations into the brief, um, you know, but they generated it through a large language model, um, pointed at case law, and they were like, hey, what could go wrong? And it uh, turns out plenty can go wrong. It can, it can make stuff up. Um, and and that is, uh, I think that's a real cautionary tale, especially as we start to think about trust. Um, you know, we talked about trust in terms of avail- being reliable and being up, but trust in terms of the content. Is this real? Is this right? Um, how many man hours do I need to spend? following chat gpt to see if it's right um how much of that can the company do for me so that i can trust this tool you know there's also um who's the author of of a document right so in the information Mm. services sector there's a lot of scholarly publishing you know medical research scientific research elsevier yeah yeah companies are issuing guidelines if you're going to publish research on our on our platform well number one you know ai cannot be the author uh, and if you are, uh, there's rules against manipulating images with AI. And if you are using AI in any of your research, you need to disclose disclose that. So this is a, mm. a new, in many ways, disruptive tech technology with incredible potential. And over the long term, it's going to be transformative. Over the short term, it's uh, proceed with caution uh, and, and purpose and, and find out what the particular use cases are. And the and the boundaries uh, that you can operate within, given the state of maturity of generative, you know, AI and and language models, like uh, at at this time. But certainly optimistic about uh, you know the capabilities. For me personally, um, you know, I've I've used um, GPT to learn faster. Uh, we had a medical appointment recently, and uh, you know, did a trip to the doctor, and there were terms in there I didn't recognize, and and I came really quickly like 10 levels deep on 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 learning um which saved me a lot of time versus going out and going to google and and, and searching right so as more people start to use these and adopt them they're going to have to start they're going to start having expectations on how b2b products behave so if i'm searching with a b2b product i'm going to expect it might behave in a, in a certain way. So I think that I mean, natural language processing is so different from the way we we've learned to search Google. Right. So yes. yeah, it's, it's, exactly. it's very, yeah, it's a transformative experience overall. So you might move yeah. away from fast food search in some cases to, you know, prompts and things like that. And that's just something to keep in mind for the, mm-hmm. for the, for the longer term. Yeah. No, well said. And uh, yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, none of us have a crystal ball on where this is going, but I think, um, you know, the formula that we we always apply here, and I often hear you recommending, is uh, is solve for need. Um, find find that use case, that killer use case, and if it fits, use it. Um, but don't assume it's a nail just because you have a great hammer. Uh, That's right. Yeah, so, I love that. <laughs> That's great. All right. So um, in, in uh, wrapping up, I want to take you through a, a speed round. Um, if you're okay with it, love it. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So um, there's a ringing endorsement for you on your LinkedIn page from Matthew Schultz, who's a VP of product engineering at Forrester. It reads in part, I still only have two books on my desk and both are Bernie recommendations, which have too many dog ears to count. That's a a great quote. He knows how to launch products, help teams work together even better. And I cannot recommend him or his team enough. 
What are these two books? <laughs> one is the product uh, mindset, and one was uh, Simon Sinek, uh, a book. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. I don't have to get the title. Reach out to me. And I'll, and I will get you a, I'll, I'll get you a copy. <laughs> I, I mean, I've read, I think everything from Simon Sinek. So I, it's got to, yes. Start with why maybe? No, no, it was later. It was about, uh, it was about innovation. Um, oh no, it, yeah, here it is. The infinite game. Yeah. Uh, the infinite game. Yes. Yeah, the infinite game. So that was, uh, that was the book. Um, that's great. Learn, learn a ton from it. Sorry. I blanked on the, on the title. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, it's a great recommendation. So congrats. Um, you're one of the calmest, most unflappable people I've had the pleasure of working with. Uh, you, we've certainly been in some high, high pressure situations together before. What's your secret? Do you meditate yoga? What are we, what are we talking about here? Uh, low, 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 low blood pressure. Uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I just have uh, young the, children. <laughs> calm and equanimity. Um, yeah. Don't, don't tell my, my kids that you said I'm calm all the time. They would, they wouldn't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this, is a, this is a professional demeanor that you you uh, you put on, yeah, but it's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a it's a great it's a great compliment. Um, I don't know, it's kind of like philosophy approach to uh, approach to life, but you know, act act as one team. We're kind of all this in together, and and uh, I guess the general overriding philosophy is uh, even the even when the sky is cloudy and gray, it's it's always blue skies above the gray. Mm. That's that's there you go. There's a little bit of philosophy there, right? Right. Uh, all right. Um, last one. What do you have against feature parody? <laughs> I don't have because <laughs> this is one place where you lose your cool and and you become a little bit more passionate. So I don't, uh, think, we, I don't think we have enough uh, time. But but this 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 <laughs> the short one is um, well. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll I'll tell I'll tell a quick story like. On, on one of my big birthdays, uh, I did an adventure race for the for the first time, right? Hmm. And uh, adventure racing, if you're not familiar, is typically like three different disciplines. Uh, there's some trail running, there's some mountain biking, and then there's some paddling. And it's hmm. a bit of a treasure hunt. So you might have like 20 different um, checkpoints that you need to find. And you get three different maps and you kind of puzzle those together and you, you figure out and you, know, you try to, you know, try to be the first to complete it. But for most people, it's just go out there and have fun. But you can never assume that the other person in the adventure race knows where they're going, right? So you might be following someone like, ah, I'm going to follow them because they've got it figured out. You can't assume that the other person has it figured out. <laughs> you can become completely lost, even if they're completely uh, 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 you know, co uh, confident. So mm -hmm. you know, feature parity to me, if you are doing feature parity to go on par with a competitor, you don't have any evidence or basis for assuming that the competitor has actually have, has, has it figured out, right? Um, maybe they've got rapid growth and things like that, but maybe that could be their sales engine or, or something different. It doesn't necessarily mean that the product is, is, uh, is, is solving for need. It could be a pricing mechanism or something else. So, um, you know, I'd go back to the product mindset, solving for need and minimizing time to value. Uh, I really firmly believe in the, in the principles you need to, you need to talk to your customers and your users. And if you are consistently rolling out new features you're uh, you're adding complexity to your to your product right you can you can create a really convoluted noisy product that doesn't necessarily uh solve for needs so um you know constantly churning out features for the sake of having advertisable news or or worse doing it because your your competitors are doing it is is not the reason you need to you need to have um you know your your ideas validated um, one of the co-authors of the book, uh, Jessica Hall, 
taught me something early on. She said, you know, Bernie, it's, it's, it's sometimes even more important to learn where we're wrong as it is to learn where we're right. So the idea is to learn fast in the prototyping phase when you're working with paper prototypes and testing new ideas before you invest in what can be expensive code and infrastructure and everything else is to validate and sometimes more importantly, invalidate your, your, your ideas. But don't assume yeah. that the other person in the adventure race knows where they're going because you <laughs> lost and way, way, way off course if you're just pursuing feature parity because you assume that everybody else has it figured out. I, I love the the adventure race metaphor uh, definitely works. Um, that, that's fantastic because, yeah, I can totally imagine how seductive it is to follow that that confident looking person <laughs> right to nowhere. <laughs> Certainly, you know, you've got a map, you know the terrain and you've got to figure it out, uh, figure out yourself find your way. It, it, it's funny how many conversations I've been in with executives who are yelling at me that we need to follow that guy. Um, and uh, I'm like, I just I'm maybe like, I don't know. I'm not saying that we but should we do something to find out if we're that's one of, correct? One of the reasons why I loved the infinite game is you should not follow that gal or that guy or, or you know whoever right um because you need to be looking towards the future i like the old three horizons of growth you know framework mm. by mckinsey too it's kind of fallen out of favor a little bit because of the speed of innovation but i think the principles still hold true i agree you, you know invest in your core invest in your adjacent core and then figure out in the future what disrupts you and and you build that so that you, you know you're disrupting and building for the future versus being future by. ready, future okay. ready. I, I'd like to tell people I can't, I can't future proof you, but I can future ready you. Future ready, um, exactly. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no, the, uh, probably like the key takeaway from the infinite game was was just you know breaking outside of of the rules of today and thinking about the potentialities of tomorrow and, and getting there before everybody else does. You know. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, what that's a that's a great place for us to to wrap up, Bernie. I really appreciate having you on and uh, and and getting to talk to you directly about your industry and, and your insights. Um, I think it's it's uh, it's great that we get to do this. Some a lot of times we're co-hosting others, so so this yep. is a this is a treat. So thanks, well, Bernie. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. This has been an episode of the Innovation Engine, a podcast from Three Pillar Global. 3Pillar is a digital product development and innovation partner that helps companies compete and win in the digital economy. To learn more about 3Pillar Global and how we can help you, visit our website at 3PillarGlobal.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.